This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, predictions for 2023. It's January. Time to reflect on the year that's passed and look ahead to the year rolling out in front of us. And at EdSource, that means veteran reporter John Festerwald is making predictions. Every year, John gets out his crystal ball and tells us a fortune. What he thinks might or might not happen in California education in the new year. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he gets it wrong. But it's always fun to see what he predicts and how he bets with what he calls fensters. If John thinks it's a sure thing something will happen, he gives it a likelihood of five fensters. If he thinks there's no chance, he'll give it one fenster. Anyway, you get the idea. Later in the episode, we'll be hearing from several EdSource reporters about stories they're excited to cover in the new year. But first, I thought I'd check in with John about his 2023 predictions, which are published in full at edsource.org. Hi, John. Hey, Zadie. So I know we can't go over all of your predictions, but what are some of the predictions that you know are safe bets that you're almost completely sure of? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It's always fun to start the new year out with you. And as far as I'm concerned, nothing's safe because they're always many times wrong. But you can see certain things at work in the state that you should focus people's attention on because these things are going to happen. For example, the budget is going to fall this year. We are so used to having surpluses the last two or three years, and now we're destined to have a drop in income. All the economists are predicting, if not a recession, then a real decline in personal income, and schools get 40% of the money in the general fund. So it's going to decline, and that's going to create tensions. We do. We are better off than we were before the last Great Recession because we now have a rainy day fund and districts have built up huge surpluses uh, because they've gotten a lot of one-time money in the past several years. But there's also inflation rising too. So there's this tension between are they going to experience cuts or are they going to get the COLA, the cost of living increase, because these are high inflationary times. I predict that, you know, they will get a call because the legislature is intent on giving it, and it could be 8%, which is one the largest in years. Last year was about the same. But then suppose there's not enough money for that. What happens then? And, the, and we're going to take away from the rainy day fund, so that'll get us through a little bit. But then the governor may have to say, well, I'm going to take back some of this one-time money that I gave you last year, and I think they're going to do that. My guess is that there was a $4 billion appropriation called music and arts, a discretionary, which means they can do with it whatever they want. It's not going to go to arts and music. And I think the governor can say, okay, well, I've got to take some of that back, maybe a, a billion or two. I have to say, I hope you're wrong about that last part, but you're yeah. right. Yeah, well, it all depends how bad it is. We're going by the LAO that said it's going to be a $3 billion deficit next year, and we may even get a recession. And if we get a recession, we're really going to have to cut back. And one of the signals is to the legislature, don't send me any more programs that are new. But it also says the school districts are going to say, hallelujah, no new programs. We're trying to cope with community schools. We're trying to cope with after-school programs. We don't have the staff to do it right now. So let us try and implement and think things through before you add more to our plate. 
But I noticed, for example, that you are predicting that Governor Newsom will come up with his own programs, one of which he kind of already promised, right? Yes. He had worked with uh, Representative Akila Weber from San Diego, whose mother, Shirley Weber, had the seat before her. She proposed to Governor Brown and said, look, black students have a lowest performing subgroup. We need extra attention for, for our students. And so add money to the local control funding formula. And Governor Brown was reluctant to do it. He wasn't sure how the money would be spent. And it's also potential Prop 209 issues in terms of affirmative action and favoring one group over another. And I think Governor Newsom has said, okay, let's work on this. We will add money. It is the lowest performing subgroup that does not already receive money under the local control funding formula. Let's figure out to make sure it's effective and how it's going to work. I threw another use for the money, which one of the advantages of this predictions column is I can say, well, I predict the governor will add money for tutoring. And I have no idea, but I think it's really important that we address this issue. And I have one particular program I like, to be honest with you, and it's College Corps. It provides $10,000 to college students who tutor for 15 hours a week. And I said, you know, this is probably the most effective use you can do and direct it towards teaching reading in the early grades and math, say, middle school and high school. It's a really effective way of addressing an issue. Every district needs tutors and they can't find them. And I thought, you know, this is almost like a rounding error in a $100 billion budget. But I predict, so I gave it a three out of five, Fensters, which is my currency, I said, he, the governor's going to do that. And uh, maybe uh, he'll read this and say, oh, yeah, what a great idea. And I, of course, will be the great seer. So we'll see. Okay, John, I want to hear more from you about your predictions. But first, let's check in with some of our other reporters about what stories they're going to be covering this year. We're gearing up for the new year with lots of big developments to cover across the state. In early education, California's expansion of transitional kindergarten, or TK, will continue. This fall, two-thirds of all four-year-olds in the state will be eligible for TK, with the birthday cutoff now at April 2nd. We're continuing our literacy series with a look at how English learners learn best to read and what's being done inside the juvenile justice system to teach teenagers how to read while they're incarcerated. And of course, following more about dyslexia screening. Carolyn Jones covers student wellness, mental health, and special education. As we've talked about before, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding mandatory dyslexia screening in California. A lot of other states do it already, but California has not so far due to several reasons, opposition from the teachers union, English learner community, and so forth. So all those parties have been trying to hammer out some kind of an agreement or some kind of screener that works for everybody. So I'll be really curious to see if a new bill is introduced this January addressing that. Um, Last year's bill failed in committee. And then also UC San Francisco has been working on the screener itself for many months now and really trying to perfect it and make it work for students who speak all different languages, all the languages that are spoken in California. That should be released soon too. So I'll be looking for that as well. And what other stories down the line are you excited to cover? Well, the other thing I'm going to be looking really closely at is mental health funding. The last two years, the state has poured lots and lots of money. I think last year it was $4.7 billion alone into youth mental health services, such as more counselors, community schools, a whole variety of programs. And that's a, it's a historic 
investment. The whole country has never seen anything like this before. So the big question is, is this working? Um, after a year or two of this, I mean, we should start to see some results. Um, I'll be looking at discipline data and attendance and what youth themselves say about how they're feeling and, you know, academic achievement, all those things play into mental health. So that's going to be the $4.7 billion question is, has, is this paying off? Is this seeing results? But then also moving forward, what's the governor going to do this year with mental health funding? Is it going to continue or is it just sort of a one-off? And if so, is it enough? Is it adequate? And then, you know, of course, the real obvious one is how are kids feeling now? I mean, it's been two years since they've been back in school, most of them. And I mean, are they feeling better? Are some of these impacts from the pandemic lingering still? I mean, are kids still feeling anxious? I think they are. The data shows that they are. The attendance data and a lot of the academic stuff all kind of points to, you know, the signs that kids are not feeling good right now. So I'm going to be continuing to look at that as well, you know, what the issues are and the disproportionate impacts and then what schools and legislators and policymakers and advocates are doing to address it. Carolyn has a really interesting story coming up soon about a new school board member in the town of Shasta outside of Redding in Northern California. He is one of the only elected officials in the United States to have autism. And he's young, you know, I think he's only 19 or 20. And he himself had gone through the special ed program in his in his local school. And then when he turned 18, he said, I want to make it better. And so he ran for school board and he was appointed and he just took office. And I had a great interview with him. I really enjoyed talking to him. And I'm really excited to see what kind of perspective he brings and what kind of changes come out of that. Based in the Central Valley, Emma Gallegos covers equity in education. She's in charge of looking at whether students in different regions or from different backgrounds have the same opportunities. She's looking forward to covering more about career and technical education, which she says has changed a lot over the years. When you think about career technical education um, in, you know, like the mid-century and women being trained to be homemakers and maybe to be typists or people of color being put on a vocational track that would not allow them to go to college, um, and then other groups being pushed on that college track. This is still, I think, an ongoing question. So for instance, you know, you start taking classes even as early as junior high to lead you to become an engineer, for instance. And so that's a good paying job that you think everyone should have the opportunity to. But, you know, who is getting selected to be in those classes? Who's prepared for them? Who's told you know, you're the right material, you're not the right material. Last year um, at EdSource, we took a look at dual enrollment, which helps put students on a college track. And so I think we're going to be looking at that again this year. One focus that we're looking at is A through G requirements. So who has access to the kind of classes that ensure that you are eligible to even go to a UC or CSU in the first place? So I think there's just going to be these ongoing issues looking at who has access to opportunities, who doesn't, because that ends up setting students up for success. We have a whole team of folks at EdSource that cover higher education, too. I asked Ashley A. Smith to tell me what we can look forward to on the higher ed beat this year. So um, in particular, the Cal State system, they have a lot going on this year. They'll continue to deal with the um, fallout 
from how they handle or mishandle Title IX cases. You know, this started almost a year ago with the former chancellor, um, Joe Castro, resigning over how he handled a sexual harassment case when he was president at Fresno State. And, you know, since then, we've just found case after case of sexual harassment cases across the system and um, how they've been mishandled by the universities. And you'll see issue did make some changes in the aftermath of all of that. You know, they eliminated the ability of administrators to retreat to the faculty ranks, um, even if they've been found of misconduct. But we are still waiting on a couple of independent investigations, one of them by the California State Auditor. The other thing that I'm expecting this year, speaking of former Chancellor Joe Castro, is the search for his permanent replacement. The current interim chancellor, uh, she's the second woman to hold that position. So there's a chance that perhaps the next person selected uh, for the permanent job is a woman. And then finally, the biggest story I suspect um, for Cal State this year will be how it handles um, salaries and wages for faculty and support staff. Um, This spring, there's going to be the very long-awaited faculty salary study that comes out and a number of of people have already indicated they expect that study to show compensation is just below what other comparable universities offer. Last year, there was the staff salary study and it basically revealed the same thing that uh, compensation is below what other universities offer for those positions. And what's interesting is that that staff study called for nearly $900 million in recommendations over um, the next 10 years, which CSU said they they could not afford. And I should add that last year, they did give pay raises to their presidents, which they were criticized for because they do have this, this huge question mark out there for the support staff and for faculty. So it's a lot of pressure looking at CSU this coming year, and and, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. So John, now that we've discussed what some of our other reporters are planning to cover, let's come back to your crystal ball. What's your most daring prediction, or the one that maybe you aren't so sure about? A lot of focus is on test scores. They dropped a great deal last year, not surprisingly because of the pandemic. And test scores are only one measure of the impact of the pandemic, which affects mental health. It affects a lot of issues and it's going to take years to recover, have students recover to where they were pre-pandemic. And so the hope is, well, you know, we're throwing all this money at it and maybe they have staff that have been added. We'll see a gradual improvement. The fact that students are back in person, optimistic. But I thought about third graders now who were kindergartners at the start of the pandemic and how difficult it is to learn to read over Zoom. And then you come back in classes and you're you're learning with masks on. So you can't pronounce the words and see how they're pronounced by looking at a teacher, how difficult it is, plus all the other things that are disrupting in their lives. And I think we're really going to see another telltale sign of the pandemic in third grade reading and math scores. I think finally that will alert us to say this is a really serious issue. These kids have suffered in early in their schooling 
this is an emergency. Hate to predict, but I think the scores of third graders in particular, this is a generation that will then go through school not being able to read in third grade. That's serious. So, John, I love looking at your predictions. I always think they're really fun. How much weight do you think we really should give your fensters? Um, I think you should give no weight to them, but come up with your own, put them aside, and check in a year. And um, I'm always modest. I always make fun of my predictions, but they're not all wrong. <laughs> and uh, you can go back and check. But it's a good thing to think ahead. And also, you know, here's the thing. Predictions have to be quantifiable, and yet so much in school is not quantifiable. You don't know. It's a, it's a relationship between teachers in a classroom and lots of things that are really hard to predict. These are just surrogate measures for what may be happening in a school, something to pay attention to, and it's fun to look ahead. Was there any moment in 2022 that really surprised you or kind of went against what you would have predicted? Yeah, I guess I didn't foresee the amount of tension that was reflected in the disruption in school boards and and the number of of parents who got involved and then were elected. And I think I didn't get into this prediction, but we'll see how that plays out this year. I didn't predict as many school members would say, I've had it. You know, this is just too much. It's a volunteer job let somebody else do it. And some of the ones who said, I'll do it, uh, are out of sync with the other members. And we're going to see that because it's a hard job. And and if you don't appreciate the need for compromise and understand how schools work and changes don't happen overnight, they happen over time. And you really need to work with the school administration to make changes that work over time. Nothing happens if the flip of a switch. Is there anything you're really excited about for 2023? Yeah, I am, Zadie. Over the past couple of years with surpluses, we have funded once-in-a-generation programs. And the implementation this year in particular, next year, are something to watch. And they include the implementation of transitional kindergarten for all four-year-olds. We have community schools, hundreds of them, with true parental participation and community-based services. We have expanded hours of learning, three hours a day and six weeks of summer school focused on low-income schools. And when we just approved a billion-dollar initiative to fund the arts. And so it's really exciting potential and the challenges will be staffing, whether we can find the people to work on the programs, and whether districts actually have the expertise and the wherewithal to implement them. So all these things deserve watching and supporting over the next year. You can read John's full predictions at edsource.org and see how he did last year and make your own predictions for the coming year. EdSource will have lots of stories for you, that's for sure. I mean, you can bet all your fensters on that one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to our guests, John Fensterwald, Carolyn Jones, Emma Gallegos, and Ashley A. Smith. Our CEO is Anne Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. 
Join me next week and subscribe so you won't miss an episode.